A lot of the studies that Medtronic presented at the ADA meeting that covered its mini-med insulin pump technology were focusing on kids and teenagers. Kids and teenagers typically have much higher glucose levels than adults, and they also historically have trouble bringing them down to healthy levels. Basically, that Medtronic's pump can pick up the slack for them, so the technology can be a big help there. That's Andrea Park, an editor here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from her about the latest in diabetes research that was presented at the American Diabetes Association Conference. I'm Teresi Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce Medtech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, June 30th. Happy birthday to my sister. And to kick off the news rundown, we've got my colleague Angus Liu to help me share this week's top biopharma and medtech industry news you need. So Angus, the UK's National Cancer Center is shutting down after 22 years. Max Bayer reported this story. Can you tell us what he found out? So the UK's National Cancer Research Center wasn't able to secure a financing strategy. Fiona Driscoll, chairwoman of the charity, wrote a letter to colleagues. In it, she said that the board decided that the risk of operational failure was too great to continue. The institute was meant to help bridge the gap between drug developers and cancer researchers to spur additional clinical trials. The decision to close comes as the government passed a more than $800 million spending package to invigorate the country's life science ecosystem. A good chunk of that money was directed at bolstering clinical trials. Also in the letter to colleagues, Fiona Driscoll wrote that the organization would work to see if any partners could continue any ongoing work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, in other news, a lot has been happening at the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions over the weekend. And uh, Andrea Park and Gabrielle Mason are going to tell us more about their coverage in just a minute. But there was a striking number buzzing around the conference, and that's 58. 58 pounds. That's how much that's weight patients. <laughs> yeah. That's how much weight patients lost on average while taking Eli Lilly's next gen obesity treatment for 48 weeks. Uh, so, Nick Paul Taylor reported this story. He wrote that there was new phase two data presented at the ADA scientific sessions. The highest dose of investigational treatment, retitutide, reduced weight by 16% or 41 pounds at 24 weeks. And then a secondary measure that extended the time period to 48 weeks is where the higher reductions were seen, equaling a mean of 28% weight loss. So patients had yet to reach a weight plateau by the time the study ended, and so that suggests that the results may not truly capture the drug's full ability. We know there are some of the uh, very popular uh, weight loss drugs out there. So how does uh, retitutide data compare to other weight loss drugs? Well, it blows them all out of the water. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's much higher than most currently approved medications. For example, Nova Nordisk's Wegovi mm -hmm. um, achieved 12% weight loss, according mm -hmm. to the data that underpinned their, its uh, 2021 approval. So this phase two data from Eli Lilly has given it what it needs to launch a late stage program that looks at obesity for chronic weight management and the many associated complications. And Angus, I saw that Helen Flourish reported a story this week on how researchers have new evidence that light could be used to restore normal heart rhythm in atrial fibrillation or AFib. So can you tell us about that? 
Right. The study was published on June the 21st in the Journal of Internal Medicine. In this study, scientists described how they leveraged the optogenetics to restore normal heart rhythm in rat with AFib. So optogenetics is the use of light to control biological processes. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me a little bit more about what AFib is? Sure.、Um, AFib is an abnormal heart rhythm that arises from improper electrical activity in the upper chambers of the heart or atria. This is causing them to shake rather than contract, preventing them from moving blood down to the heart's lower chambers or ventricles. This stagnant blood can wind up forming blood clots, putting the patient at risk of a heart attack or a stroke. So managing AFib、uh, could involve medications and even surgery, or the implantation of a device like a pacemaker. In some more extreme cases,、uh, some patients could require electrical cardioversion, which is a procedure where electrical patches are used to shock the heart back、mm-hmm. into a normal rhythm. And that procedure requires sedation, which comes with its own set of risks.、Um, so many heart researchers are re- interested in the use of optogenetics instead.、Um, the technique requires a first a gene therapy. To get the heart tissue to express light-activated ion channels found in algae, then they can control、wow. them with light. Yeah,、mm-hmm. there has been some success in mice, which is promising, but many think that it might not go further than that.、Um, so we'll have to pay attention to where it goes from here. Yeah, definitely. Teresa,、um, the biotech industry wrote a new letter on transgender care.、Um, more than sixty executives signed it.、Uh, what did the letter say? Yeah,、uh, for some background, bans on transgender care are spreading across the U.S. I mean, the numbers just keep climbing. We're up to 31 states and 150 individual bills and executive、mm-hmm. orders. So, Annalee Armstrong reported this story, and in the letter, executives called on legislators and policymakers to resist these actively harmful, and that's in quotes. They they wrote、mm-hmm. that they're actively harmful policies. For transgender individuals, they also urged healthcare providers and others to push back against efforts to dismantle healthcare privacy restrictions under HIPAA. Iolix Therapeutics was one of the coordinators of the campaign. Its CEO Elizabeth Jeffords told Annalee that the letter grew as a labor of love from the executives to support their own loved ones. But she then expanded on the realization that not everyone has that kind of support in their own gender transitions. In the letter, the biotech leaders also encouraged their peers in the industry to step up, and they provided recommendations for how to operate a state, for how to operate in a state that bans gender affirming care, and how to support LGBTQ plus employees. And actually, we just released a great episode of Podnosis, our sister podcast, about care for LGBTQ plus people and ways doctors and healthcare providers can educate themselves and approach healthcare with compassion in this this really delicate time. It's our June twenty eighth episode. It's really great. So I'll put the link to that show in our show notes. Right, and we'll、uh, have another、uh, top line episode focused on some treatment for LGBTQ people. Next future, week so, with you. Yeah, next week. Yeah, looking forward <laughs>、yeah. to that.、Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing the news with me today, Angus. Thank you, Teresa. Imagine a constellation of the most accomplished visionaries and trailblazers, handpicked by our brilliant editors here at Fierce Life Sciences and Healthcare. Well, hello, Fierce Fifty. Our new report is launching this year, and it's going to be huge. 
These 50 people are the movers and the shakers who are igniting change in healthcare delivery, drug development, research, and beyond. So spread the word, because this is just the beginning of the Fierce 50 journey. Several of our writers covered news coming out of the American Diabetes Association's annual scientific sessions over the weekend. We have Andrea Park and Gabriel Mason here with us. Andrea, you focused on the medtech side of things. Did you notice any overarching trends in the new devices showcased at the conference? Yeah. So the biggest one was probably the focus on type 2 diabetes. So the majority of people who use these technologies like insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors have type 1. So there's been a huge push in recent years to get more people with type 2 to use them too. Uh, especially because people with type 2 make up a much bigger part of the diabetes population. Like, it's not even close. Um, so at the conference, Abbott highlighted two of their new partnerships that are specifically focused on getting its Freestyle Libre continuous glucose monitors into the hands of people with type 2 diabetes. So for starters, it kicked off a collab with Weight Watchers. Um, and basically through that one, type 2 patients who have been prescribed certain Freestyle Libre sensors can now see their CGM data directly in the Weight Watchers app so they can see how, you know, their food choices affect their blood sugar levels. So that's all in one place. And then Abbott also unveiled a brand new partnership with the ADA itself, and they pledged $2.65 million in grant funding over the next three years that'll go to ADA researchers. And the goal there is that the funds will help those researchers dig into the concept of using CGM data to help people with type 2 diabetes. So that data could be used to help them manage and adjust their dietary habits, whether or not they're on insulin therapy. So continuous glucose monitoring devices could be used even by people who have diabetes but don't take insulin? Yeah. And that was actually the focus of Dexcom's big announcement at the conference. So they announced that they're developing a new sensor that would be just for that group. So people with type 2 who don't take insulin. And they make up about 70% of all people with diabetes in the U.S., and so Dexcom wants to be rolling out this sensor by next year. How will that sensor differ from Dexcom's other CGMs? Yeah, so I interviewed Kevin Sayer, who's the CEO of Dexcom, and he was telling me that the new sensor will cut out certain features that the other CGMs do currently have. So like, for example, the new G7 CGM that Dexcom is rolling out right now has this algorithm that can predict when glucose levels are going to fall dangerously low but that's not really as big of an issue for people with type 2 who aren't on insulin therapy, so they'll get rid of that feature. Um, and basically, the new sensor is still going to monitor glucose levels, but the main focus will be on tracking their diet, medications, and activity levels so that the users can see how making lifestyle changes in those areas will impact their health. And Sarah was actually saying even beyond, you know, the diabetes population, he was saying this next sensor is kind of a stepping stone on the way for Dexcom to reach pretty much everyone. So that could be people who are at risk of developing diabetes or people who just need help managing their weight, or even those who are on what Sayer called a health and wellness crusade. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, let's switch gears a bit. And Gabby, um, we'll talk with you for a minute about what were some of the biggest stories you saw from biotech. Yeah. So there were a lot of, you know, data drops this year on up and coming obesity drugs um, like Eli Lilly's next gen drug that cut an average of 58 pounds. Um, that garnered a lot of attention, but there were several other significant data presentations as well. So one of those presentations came from Boehringer 
Ingelheim. So the pharma had previously shared a little slice of data on its Zeeland Pharma partnered obesity prospect and now kind of gave us a deeper look at the phase two results. And what were the main findings of those results? So basically, patients receiving a high dose of the investigational drug called servodutide had nearly 19% weight loss in a phase two trial. So Boeinger also provided safety data this time around, saying the asset didn't raise any unexpected safety issues. Um, The findings are pretty good compared to what's on the market now, but the data drop was before Lilly's phase two results that showed quite a larger reduction for its Mm -hmm. candidate. And what's next for Boeinger? Are they moving Servotutide forward? Yeah, so I did speak with their corporate VP and head of cardiometabolic medicine, Dr. Wahid Jamal, who said they're planning on a phase three launch, but, you know, it's too early to share a timeline for that. Did anything else stand out for either of you from your coverage of the conference? Andrea? Yeah, I'll say one thing I thought was interesting was that a lot of the studies that Medtronic presented at the ADA meeting that covered its mini-med insulin pump technology were focusing on kids and teenagers. So I talked to Jennifer McVean, who's a pediatric endocrinologist and the director of medical affairs for Medtronic's diabetes business. And I asked her, you know, why it's so important to look at how these new diabetes technologies work in kids. And she pointed out that kids and teenagers typically have much higher glucose levels than adults. And they also historically have trouble bringing them down to healthy levels because they can be more sensitive to insulin and they also just may have trouble managing the condition themselves. So one of Medtronic's studies showed that the new Minimed 780G's autocorrection feature could help pick up some of the slack if users forget to program a dose of insulin before a meal. And then another looked at a way to simplify those mealtime carb counts. And both of those features ultimately helped improve the amount of time that the kids spent in a healthy glucose range. So what do those results mean for kids and teenagers with diabetes? Mm -hmm. Basically, that Medtronic's pump can pick up the slack for them. So, you know, it might be difficult for kids to accurately count their carbs or to remember to program a a bolus, a single dose of insulin medication before every single meal. And then, you know, there's also the social aspect. So McVean was telling me she always thinks about the teenagers who maybe don't want to feel different around their friends by pulling out an insulin pump at the lunch table. So the technology can be a big help there, too. Great. And Gabby, did anything else stand out for you at the conference? So, yeah, I mentioned Eli Lilly before. They also had another presentation for a separate new obesity prospect. So the company has, you know, a deep pipeline of weight loss assets and already has the approved diabetes med Manjaro, which isn't approved for obesity yet, but it has been used off-label for this purpose and shown 16% weight loss. And what was the other data that Lilly shared at ADA? So this new data was for an investigational oral obesity drug dubbed Orforglipron. Um, The drug showed 14.7% weight loss at 36 weeks in a phase two study. So those results set, you know, a high efficacy bar, which could rise even higher over time since the um, recipient's weight loss had yet to plateau in the study's time period. But then, then again, those results are kind of, you know, blown out of the water by Lily's own other investigational drug that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. 
Great. Well, thank you both for sharing. Of course. Yeah, definitely. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line. Teresa, I have a question for you. Do you think uh, Andrea and I, do you think our voices sound the same? We were listening back we, like, to the podcast. couldn't tell ourselves apart. Yeah, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's so strange. It's funny because I know voices, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and I like both of your voices. That's oh right. my gosh. But do you have like I, a ranking? I, no, I think I could. Which one's better? <laughs> <laughs>